Your line of questioning isn't, it, it isn't uh, conducive to a good interview. Why is that? It just isn't. It's not going anywhere. You're asking me this, this, it's, it's, this is... What's wrong with that line of questioning? It's unfair. Right, listen. Mm. If, you, if you want to sort it out, fight me. You didn't fight me. You could have fought me and you didn't. If you want to fight me, here I am. Let's have a fight. Let's do it on the cobbles if you want. Forget boxing. Let's do it outside. Went up for a hat and I knocked Hatton out with 10 ounce gloves on. Stepping back when he was undefeated. Yeah, my prime, I spanked him. Yeah, How did he gonna be as equal talent as me? Are you serious? As easy as I beat him? I could beat him while playing checkers on the other side. That's how easy that was. <laughs> and he better than us? Are you serious, no. James Tony? Hey guys, welcome to Beyond Boxing. New name, same face behind the microphone, same voice in your ears. And hopefully something better than you had in the previous incarnation. So I think this just reflects the fact that, you know, there's a slow drift away from sort of the play-by-play -play boxing element of what I'm used to doing and what people are used to hearing me do towards something along the lines of, you know, what can I give the listeners that maybe other people haven't given and therefore can we make this something that goes beyond just your standard Twitter-based boxing conversation? So I'll be interested now what people think. I don't think they'll be that much different. I'm trying to do it from a different perspective, as always. But I think the key thing here is being able to have conversations that involve boxing, but I sometimes sit outside boxing or sit outside the immediate dynamics of boxing. Uh, obviously, for that, you can go to the fantastic outlets like Porky's Corner. So every so often I'll jump on Russ's platform and do some stuff there, which is probably more current and so forth. And then, you know, I can have my own lane here, have some guests, have some conversations and just talk more broadly about the bits of boxing I find interesting and hopefully the people I speak to find interesting. And then we can kind of just, I don't just take it to a different direction. You know, just something to to entertain you guys as, as we hit level threes and as we hit level twos and we're still working from home, which we didn't think we'd be doing, all these sorts of elements and just giving you guys something different to hopefully entertain. So what brought me back to the microphone at this particular time? It was, it was taking in the Lomachenko versus Lopez unification bout, all the marbles, all the belts, the the battles for undisputed that we've all been craving for, and at least we got one of those on Saturday. And it's really interesting because I took some time just to listen to what everyone was going to say and how everyone wanted to be super analytical about what happened on Saturday night. I think that fight can be described as something that happens on numerous occasions throughout history. It's, it's the opportunism of boxing that people never talk about because the winner gets to tell the story. But it is just sheer opportunism. So to a British boxing fan, what does opportunism look like? It looks like George Groves and it looks like Carl Froch. And what do I mean by that? When you're Carl Froch in between 2011 and 2013, we'll say, right? We'll just talk about these years. I think these were probably Carl's best years physically. When you're in Carl's position, 
you're you're looking forward at so many opportunities and you're looking back at so many threats, right? And so that's Carl's life. He's training because he doesn't necessarily know who he's going to get. It depends on the promoter and it depends on, you know, the, what the broadcasters want. But Carl's, he's lost that tunnel vision you have as an up-and-comer. In the same time period, George Groves has that. He spars people like Carl Froch because George is still a relatively unknown. He's had the peak of fighting the Gale on a Frank Warren show. And then he's kind of disappeared into the, the Sowland wilderness. But in amongst all of that, and I think the sparring sessions that Carl had with George and the, you know, the situation obviously before the Kessler fight where George went and sparred with Miguel, Mikel Kessler, um, all of these things come together, right? And so George spars Carl Froch and George suddenly starts to see the gap might not be as great as people would think not knowing what had just happened. And so George's focus now zeroes in on Carl Froch. Not on winning a world title, it zeroes in on Carl Froch. And that means he's now looking for reasons he can beat Carl. Then he's looking for situations in which it will be opportune to go after Carl Froch. And so when you study the chronology, you start to hear those little murmurs in the boxing world where George is like, I think I can beat Carl Froch. And it starts to build. But at this time, he's fighting guys like Baker, Barakat, and God knows who else. He's fighting, you know, B and C level fighters. Now, these are the sort of guys, if you saw them on Anthony Yard's record, you'd be complaining he hadn't tested himself. And so that's where George is at. Remember, George is an undercard fighter on Froch versus Kessler too. He's not even co-main event. He's not chief support. He's just kind of filler. So how do you go from that to being in a position to fight Carl? The truth is, you've been preparing for this for a while. And all you were waiting for was an opportunity. All you were waiting for was for someone to show that Carl Froch is mortal. And someone can get to him. And clearly George had seen something. In not just the Mikel Kessler fight, but in the previous fights where George knew, if I can execute my game plan. And I think he'd worked on this with Adam from what I've heard and what I understand. And they'd broken down Carl's habits to the point where they were saying with confidence, if we can get to him with the jab and open him up for the right hand, we can get him because he won't take us seriously. Look at our, look at the record George Groves had. You wouldn't take that as, as a threat. That's not threatening considering the guys who Carl could have fought at the time. Your Badu, Jackson, James DeGales, for example. George is in a shining light, but George sees his opportunity in a way that Carl doesn't see the threat. And so you have the first fight. And, and a man we'll go on to discuss later, I'm sure. Terry O'Connor has an absolute shocker, gives George Groves a DDT. But up until that point, George had the fight in the pocket. What George wasn't able to do in that fight was capitalize on the fact that he caught Carl slipping. He caught Carl napping, he caught Carl being complacent and it wasn't the frotch that had been there against Ward because the fear factor wasn't there. But he couldn't capitalise on that because emotionally he had emptied his tank, which meant physically he was going to empty his tank anyway. And in the second fight, what you saw was a lesser version of the, the same approach that came into the first fight because Adam had obviously left. So there wasn't a way to elevate the game plan from the first fight. And so Carl was able to get a foothold earlier 
And then Carl had been smart enough, now that the threat's real, to come up with a sequence of punches he had never thrown before. And that's how Carl won. That's what champions do. They, they reinvent and they find another level. And Carl Froch did that. So now why is this relevant to what happened on Saturday? Teofimo Lopez would have seen the same fight we saw when Vasyl Lomachenko fought Luke Campbell. And when the fight was announced, you kind of thought it would be a one-way procession. You thought Luke would give him some trouble with his amateur background and yada, 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 the stuff that Adam Smith likes to say. But that wasn't the case. He gave him some trouble, but he was not enough to win. And what Lomachenko did is come on strong down the stretch, which is what you'd expect for a guy who's giving away height, giving away weight, and giving away reach. But Loma's obviously packing in the experience and the top-level fight credentials over Luke Campbell. But you'd have watched that fight, and all of a sudden, Vasyl Lomachenko looks mortal. So those murmurs, those, those hopeful musings to fight hype in Eddie Sekback about you'd like to fight Lomachenko one day, and now all of a sudden you're saying, actually, this might be the time to fight him. He's, he's on that edge where he might be getting complacent, where he might think he's untouchable. That might be the time to catch him. And so you then have to look at what would make you say that? You know, what would make you say that? And there was something in the pre-fight documentary that I, that I picked up on. I found it really interesting because it ties into something I'd been saying for numerous episodes on the New Age Boxing Podcast. With the date set, strategy sessions followed. We got a weak jabby spit on. It's not a rough fighter. We got to rough him up. That's all we got to do. Team Lopez's goal? To do what no other fighter has done. Find an Achilles heel within the pound-for-pound pound grate. It's all about just him throwing like a lot of punches. Even if he doesn't hit you with the jab, he'll just keep on putting it there just to bother you. A lot of pitter-patter punches. Yeah, exactly. So as soon as he jumps in with the jab, what he does, he starts to start pivoting to the right. That stepping to the right is not going to help him. What else does he have? We <laughs> there you have it. That stepping to the right. That was, for every boxing trainer, for every commentator out there, this has been staring you in the face for his entire career. And it took Teofimo, Teofimo Lopez Sr., to point that out in a documentary. And suddenly now everyone's wise after the event. But I've been saying this for such a long time. The boxer who denies Vasyl Lomachenko the right-sided exit suddenly stops all of the Matrix. That's the glitch in the Matrix. That right there is the glitch in the Matrix. And when you're a trainer, they're the moments where you earn your money. From that small seed of insight, you suddenly grow confidence. You look at your son and you go, can Teofimo execute a plan that shuts down that left-hand side? Yes, how long do we think he can do it for? He just needs to do it for the first seven rounds. Because if he can shut Lomachenko off for seven rounds, then Loma's going to chase the fight in the second half and then he can play the counterpunch with his power. Now, let's be clear. All of this is easier said than done. You know, anyone can just say this. You have to have put these sorts of things into practice to know how difficult it is because you're dealing with another human being. You're also dealing with the possibility that Lomachenko is self-aware enough to realize they might try and do that on me. So Team Lopez take a gamble. 
Loma's not going to take us that seriously that he's going to rewrite his, his game plan. He's going to keep going for that right side. So Team Lopez now have potential kryptonite. But you don't want to reveal that too soon. You know, you don't. You, 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 you want to start building it up and training your son and getting him ready. And the original fight was scheduled for April, if I remember correctly. And so you have this build-up. And you're drilling your son and you're getting sparring partners in and you're getting him to dominate that left side. is counterintuitive for an orthodox guy. Because when you fight another orthodox guy, what you're saying is, I'm walking into your power hand. So you try not to do that very often. But against the southpaw, it's essential to establish that dominance. And here's why. When Teofimo Lopez is dominant on the left-hand side, his left hook is available to throw. His straight right is available to throw. They're both in dominant positions. Lomachenko's jab is in an okay position, but only to the body, not to the head. Because he'll carry a lot of risk in throwing that, because we call this the southpaw trade. You don't want to trade your southpaw jab for my orthodox right hand. You're going to lose that all day, every day. So Loma's in a really bad position when Lopez has got that dominant position on the outside. And this is true for any orthodox versus southpaw. It means Lomachenko's backhand, which is his left hand, is the, is the punch on the outside of everything. So it's got further to travel. It's got a lot more work to do to land. And so, but even before the fight happens, your tactical plan is this. If we can block off the right-hand side, Loma's not going to be able to move to his left without catching a sweeping right hand. Not only that, we're going to force Lomachenko to fight in the width of our shoulders. And that's perfect. You've nullified the matrix. He's not going to be moving here, there and everywhere. He's going to be right between those shoulders and you can work. So, without speaking to Lopez Sr., my theory is this is how you're pulling the plan together. You're gambling that he's going to take Teofimo lightly. You're gambling that you can get that outside dominance and that you force him to fight in the width of the shoulders, down the middle channel. Okay. I'm sure everyone else has been able to do this before. Why hasn't it been executed? Can you get your son to be disciplined enough to do this? To believe in it, even when it doesn't feel like you're getting the, the magic you want. Can you still believe in this? Can you grind it out? And we'll talk about all this in the fight, but that's what you're trying to get to. Nothing clever. You don't need anything clever because you found the kryptonite. Now it's just about, if we can put him where we want him to be, then we just fight within our comfort zone. The hard part is actually just controlling the geography and geometry of the fight. That's what's hard. So all of this is happening and it all has to happen by April. Do I think they could have done all of this by April? I don't think so. I think COVID, I think the lockdown, I think everything that's happened post-March swung the advantage closer and closer to Team Lopez. Not 100%, but a fight that was probably 70-30 in Lomachenko's favor now becomes a 50-50, maybe a 55-45 in favor of the young guy. Because young guys deal better with time off than old guys. This is just self-evident, right? But all the time, you've got the camouflage and you've got the protection, you've got the cover fire of the, the doubts and the negativity in the media. So you can do all of the stuff you're doing in the shadows. No one believes it's going to work. 
You know, even the greats were starting to question things. In that, in that matchup, would you say Tio? Would you say Tio is ready for Lomo or even Kami? I mean, he's been asking for that fight. His dad has been asking for that fight. <laughs> no, he said he said he wanted to. He backed pops up. Oh, but pops has been leading the way. Uh -oh. So you're right. He he been he been co-signing, but that's a big check to write, man. As far as far as Comey, he's ready for Comey with a caveat. He he's got to go back to the gym. So, like George did prior to the first Froch fight, when you didn't really fancy George to win that, like you were actually hoping he didn't get knocked out. George was able to prepare in the shadows, and now we know how chaotic it was. You know, you lose Adam, you got Paddy Fitzpatrick, who as good a trainer as he is, is not world level. You got Barry O'Connell doing your strength and conditioning work at State of Mind Fitness, a good facility, and actually a bunch of really good guys who, who in their lane are pretty switched on. But Barry O'Connell's never fought, taken anyone to fight for a world title. Not to say that he can't, but that's a big leap to make, to go from where they were at the time to where they were trying to get to. And so George is able to do all of these things in the shadows, much like Lopez was able to. And if you'd followed the build-up to the fight and some of the work that, that Lomachenko especially had to do, the media work, these commitments that can drain you, and you've got the, the COVID thing to deal with, all these distractions, and inch by inch, the gap between him and Lopez starts to close. So it brings you to the night of the fight. And when the fight happens, I was talking about three things. I remember telling one of the guys that I used to train, Harry, I said, if Lopez can control the pace and can control the geography of that fight, in addition to the psychology, he has a really good chance of winning. I rated his chance of winning at 80%. If he could do those three things, which are not easy to do against Lomachenko, because no one apart from, was it Salido that he fought? No one was able to actually do that, to impose themselves on him. But that first round was so instructive. That first round was incredible because that's all Lopez did. And when you look at it, he wasn't overzealous. He was disciplined behind the jab. Lopez normally keeps the, the lead hand low. You know, he's got that kind of Mayweather-style you know, approach when he tries to when he tries to box. And he could do that against lower-level opponents. This is Lomachenko. You've got to have that jab busy. And in doing that, he never allowed Lomachenko to gather pace and rhythm. Now, I want to touch on this notion of gathering data because a lot of fans tweet this and they do it so glibly and without any sort of common sense, but they don't really understand that there's no such thing as gathering data in a fight. So, no boxing trainer on this planet will ever tell a fighter lose rounds in order to gather data, right? It, it doesn't make any sense. It's a, it's a fight. You can see what the guy's doing. React to it, don't react to it. That's your choice. But this notion that I, was, I started slow because I was gathering data, it annoys me because intelligent fighters shouldn't have to gather data. It's like chess. If you can't read a chessboard, I mean, you, you haven't got all week to figure it out. You have to play in the moment. You don't play rugby and say, well, actually, do you know what? We're going to let them score four tries in the first five minutes so we can figure out how they want to play. Your data gathering happens before the fight. Your data gathering happens 
when you break down an opponent's style and you find habits and weaknesses because what you're trying to do, really good trainers know this, you're just trying to break your opponent's habits, especially if your opponent's meant to be better than you. I want to figure out your five or six key habits in the ring and stop you doing those. That now takes the comfort away from you. Yeah. Now you've got to go to something you haven't been practicing for 12 weeks. I've just leveled up the playing field. Lopez did that. By moving his left foot to the left, that small but subtle drift leftward seemed to confuse Lomachenko because people normally attack Loma in straight lines. That leaves that right-hand side as an easy escape. Lopez wasn't. He had a gentle arc, a gentle clockwise arc heading to his left. And it was, it was good to watch because I'm watching this fight and I'm saying, surely Lomachenko is going to figure this out and realize, actually, you're being played here. So you're going to actually have to switch on pretty quickly and establish dominance on that right-hand side. He doesn't do that. You know, you're watching this first round and these things become apparent. Lopez has got the territory. He's got the height. He's got the reach. He's got the size. He has all the advantages, but he's not Lomachenko. He's not Vasily Lomachenko. And so you've got that doubt in your back of your head like, he can't be as good as Loma. I've seen what Loma does. I've seen what Lopez does. He can't have it in him. But here's the great thing. He didn't need to. He just had to turn Loma's engines off and Loma was going to come down to his level. He made Vasil Lomachenko mortal in that first round. He also did something really clever and I don't see many British boxers do this. He controlled the pace of the fight and it was a high-paced fight. Be absolutely clear about this. The punch stats are misleading because the pace of the fight was incredibly high. And the difference between what Lopez was doing and what a British fighter would have done, a British fighter would have done most of the movement with their hands, with their head, going forward in straight lines and so forth. What Lopez did is keep that psychological pressure by using his foot, just drifting that to the left, sometimes pulling back, not committing too much, forcing Lomachenko to think and recalibrate, and then closing that distance down again, forcing him to recalibrate. And he'd do this tens of times every minute. And Lomachenko would have to react to this. That's what he had. He had Lomachenko reacting and Loma couldn't be proactive. He couldn't set traps because he couldn't get himself in position to do what he normally does. And Lopez did this in a really intelligent way. And what we saw later on in the fight was it was quite draining. But he was able to just keep that psychological pressure. And actually, if you go back to Saturday night on Sky, when Bellew was describing the struggles he had with Usyk, it was the same principle. The fact that he's always there and he's making you think. And then whenever, just when you're ready to figure him out, just rewrites the rules again and Lopez did this in round one and he did this in round two and he kept doing it and doing it and it was impressive to watch if you love those things in boxing because that's the sign of a well-trained fighter that's the sign of a well-coached fighter that's the sign of a, a fighter who's mentally present in that ring so in round two you then start to go okay Loma's seen what's happening he's going to come out and try and do something right so Lomachenko comes down. There's a point in the second round where Lomachenko goes and does what he classically does, where he throws his head to the right-hand side and then uses that shift in weight to then pivot sharply down that side. Lopez was prepared for that. So Lopez pivots with him. So there's no net gain for Lomachenko. And you could see at that point, Lomachenko thought, this isn't supposed to happen. No one really does this to me. 
And this is in round two. And so now you're starting to think, if you're Lomachenko, if you're his corner, this might be a harder fight than we thought. I don't think we've planned for this version of Teofimo Lopez. And I think the discussions in the corner would indicate that. They genuinely believe that this couldn't last. And round after round, Lopez kept confounding the people who didn't think he could be disciplined, who didn't think he could box, who didn't think he could execute a game plan. So the first third of the fight, Lopez hasn't allowed Lomachenko to get going. He's, he has. He's literally pulled the engine out of Vasily Lomachenko. There's no gearbox, there's nothing. He's just... And, and I think just looking at the body language, Loma was hoping, no, no, I'll get him eventually. And when I do, I'll get him out of there. You know, it's that classic older guy, younger guy dynamic. This young guy can't do anything to me. So you get to round four, and you've either got it 4-0 Lopez or 3-1 Lopez, right? There can't really be a dispute about that. And so first third of the fight's definitely gone to Lopez. Now you're looking for Loma to, to make some adjustments. This is what great fighters do, right? This is what Hall of Famers do. They make the small, subtle adjustments that are needed. So Lopez makes an adjustment. Now Lo Lopez starts to introduce the left hook more to give you that deterrent to say, actually, look, not only am I going to stop you going right, but if you even think of going right, I'm going to hit you with this left hook. So now you want to avoid that left hook. And if you're Lomachenko, you start moving to your left. But Lopez is going to leave that sweeping right hand to the body right there or the straight to the body. They've clearly thought this through. Like Loma's vulnerable to the body. We've seen him made uncomfortable before. And so that was the aim. We're not going to stop him, but we are going to hurt him. And hurt him, they did. A few times, you could see Loma's reaction to the body shots through the fight told you they hurt because he was, he was determined to get out the way of those. The head shots, he'd glance them or whatever. The body shots, he was like, thanks, but no thanks. And so rounds five and six, you start to see this. This is the, the theme. And, and Lopez now rams home his advantage, his size and his strength. You know, you could see the, just the width and the size of the guy. No, impressive to watch. And so you get to round six, and however you've got it, some people had it 6-0, I had it 5-1. I'm not going to lie, I had it 5-1 halfway through. And I'm looking at this going, was Loma all hype? And you're thinking, no. I, I think halfway through, I'm now looking at everything that's happened in 2020 and gone, this is why you don't want to be 33 and inactive for 14 months and having to deal with a lockdown and having to deal with the, the stresses and travails of trying to get the right sparring and trying to get the right conditions and so on and so forth. You don't want to do that. You also, maybe, maybe you don't want to be living in a swanky house in California. Maybe you don't want to be living the life. Maybe you don't want to be you know, just enjoying the sunshine. Maybe you needed to be in deepest, darkest Ukraine, freezing your nuts off in the, in the woods or whatever. Maybe that's what was needed. Because the worry is, when you're being outthrown by a ratio of, what, three or four to one, it's very hard to justify winning the first half of the fight or even being close. And so Lopez does that. The question then becomes, did Lopez overshoot it? Did he do too much in the first half of the fight? And will he be hanging on in the second half of the fight? So these were the key questions. Now, I always say the second half of the fight is when you see Prime Loma. That's when he he starts to move through the gears with the aim of getting people out of there. Because normally by this point, he's ahead. 
So as an opposing trainer to Lomachenko, you've normally got your guy and you're just trying to keep him motivated at this point. But Lopez Senior is just trying to keep his son calm and disciplined. That dynamic was interesting to watch as well because you rarely see that in a Lomachenko fight. So from round seven, something strange starts to happen. Well, not strange, but maybe not expected to happen the way it did. All of a sudden, Lomachenko now starts to find that that outside foot. So he's now got the right side dominance he's been looking for for the whole fight. And that means he's able to let his combinations fly. Finally, finally, we get to see Lomachenko do what he, what he normally does. And we're now thinking, God, we might be in for a fight here. Lopez counters this and he goes, well, actually, if you want to come in and be the bully, I'll show you I'm the bully. And you see him using his forearm and he's shoving Lomachenko off and he's showing Lomachenko that, listen, don't try and bully me. I'm a strong guy. And Loma has a bit of respect for him. But now you start to see the, the Lomachenko engine warming up nicely. And you start to see the, the difference in class. Now, I don't want to say that to be disrespectful to Lopez, but you know, there's a difference in class between these guys. And that's more down to experience than anything. And if you give Lopez five or six years, he will be that guy where we say, look at, look at the difference in class between him and the opponent. But these middle rounds, five, six, seven, eight, are when you start to see that discipline Lopez had start to fade. And that's not down to ability. That's just simply youth and inexperience. You can't sustain that level of emotional intensity because he is. Lopez is fighting out of his skin. But five years from now, that sort of performance will be routine for him. But he has to build up this tolerance. So you're starting to see, like you did in the Groves fight, that discipline, that focus, and that intensity starts to drop off. And not necessarily that Loma got better. Loma was able to hold his level a lot better because he's experienced, he's a grown man and all these sorts of things. And you start to see Loma take some of the rounds. And so by the time you get to round number eight, so I've now split the middle four rounds. So I've got, my maths is going to be terrible here. So through six, I had it 5-1. And then seven, eight, I probably, I probably gave those to Loma because he started to put the foot on the accelerator. And now at this point, you're looking for a response from Lopez. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for that response now. You know, you're like, okay, Lomachenko is now coming back into this fight. And through eight rounds, it's what, five, three? It's only two rounds in it. You need two more rounds to be sure. So you're definitely going to have to split the, the final four rounds. So now you start to see Lopez get stuck in. And now, now, now he's like, this running around isn't going to work. I don't have the energy for that. I'm literally going to have to sit here and go at it with this guy. Lomachenko's like, oh, oh, you're not moving in that intelligent way anymore. Perfect. Wanted this. I'm not coming to stop you. Lopez says, I may not have your skill, but I've got your heart. Right, so that's rounds nine, ten, eleven, twelve. That's the that's the subtext to all of this. It's it's like a race. You got one guy sprinting down that home straight. The other guy's tired, but if he can just hang on to whatever reserves of energy he's got, he'll make it over the line ahead. And you're watching this fight, and it's you know, you go six three Lopez, six four Lomachenko. You go six five Lomachenko going into the last round, and you're thinking if Lopez can't find it in him at this point. This is going to be a draw, or they may try and job him. And in that 12th round, 
you saw the heart of a champion. You don't manufacture that. That ability to summon up all your energy, all your courage to then stick it on Lomachenko, who was surprised. He thought he was going in for a stoppage. And so once, look, for me, once Lopez won that 12th round, I had it 7-5. I thought it was an incredibly close fight. I thought Loma simply ran out of time. Had he started that onslaught earlier, I think he would have probably been the winner. And so that's what I mean by opportunism. Sometimes you gamble and it goes your way. If you ask me, how many times would Lopez beat Lomachenko in his physical peak, right? Right now, if he was in shape and ready and tuned up, if they fought again tomorrow, what do I think the result would be? I think Lomachenko would probably win. If they fought again after that, who would win? Lomachenko. If they fought after that, Lomachenko. If they fought after that, Lopez. It's a... I think out of 10 fights, Lomachenko would win six or seven and Lopez would win three or four. Not because Lopez is a terrible fighter, simply because Lomachenko's been there so many times, he can just slip into that gear that's needed. And I think Lopez still needs to learn how to slip into that gear. Team Lopez gambled and they won. And so what do I mean by that? We don't relegate Lomachenko to being just an average bum because of this performance. There were probably 10 or 15 different things that contributed to Loma starting slowly. And lack of activity is probably one of them, maybe the biggest one. I'm sure all the work he had to do to, you know, the publicity, it doesn't help. But essentially, he needs activity, especially at that age, because you're just trying to maintain what you have. And so he paid for that. Lopez gambled that being able to shut that door and stop him moving to his right would be enough to get a lead. And then they would just hang on. And, they, and it worked. But that can only work once because now you know what they're going to do. You can prepare for that. So do I want them to rematch? God, no. Because I'd like to see Lopez develop properly. I think this has been a massive shot in the arm for Lopez. What it's done is it's taken the famous four prospects in the lightweight division. So you've got Teofimo Lopez, you've got Devin Haney, you've got Ryan Garcia, and you've got Javante Davis. And it's put Lopez ahead of the pack. In terms of names, by some distance. In terms of experience, put a little bit of water between them. But in terms of like ability, I don't think it's done that much. Lopez versus Davis, I'd back Lopez to win simply because he's a bigger guy and he's a bigger puncher. Against Haney, I'd probably back Lopez to win. Against Garcia, I'd back him to beat these guys. But then these guys also need to do, do their, their process of being tested and being dragged into deep waters. And let's find out what they're capable of. But it all bodes well. The rematch doesn't interest me. I'd quite like to see Lomachenko go down and fight Miguel Burchelt or whoever wins between him and Valdez. I think that'll be an entertaining fight. And I think we'll get to see Loma at his best. And then Loma can maybe come back at 135 and see who's done what. And I know people are talking about Teofimo Lopez versus Josh Taylor. I'm just like, please park that for now. Um, the difference is Josh Taylor's strong on both sides. So Josh, if you force Josh Taylor to the left, he'll hurt you. You force Josh Taylor to the right, he'll hurt you. You let Josh Taylor come on to you, he'll hurt you. And Lopez isn't quite there yet in terms of being able to 
control and nullify all opponents because for that, you need a wider skill set than he's currently got. And that's no disrespect to him. I think he'll get there eventually. But don't rush the kid before he's ready. I'd quite like to see them manage his career properly. And I think Bob Arum's a good guy for that. But I think we can now, we can now park these discussions of, you know, I remember it was either Steve Bunce or Mike Costello going, Lomachenko could be the greatest boxer of all time. Absolutely ridiculous, utter nonsense. He's good. He's, he's good and he, he revolutionized how we think, think of boxing. He, he showed the art of the possible, right? There's no questioning that. But I think Mayweather would have beaten Lopez. 135 Mayweather beats 135 Lopez. And you have to also remember Lomachenko never went through an era of your Barreras, your Morales's, Marquez, even like a David Diaz, for God's sake. Never mind Pacquiao or Shane Mosley. Loma's never been through an era that deep with talent, whereas all those guys did and they proved themselves. So unfortunately, Loma's got to go through that. He's got to clean up at 135 for us to talk about him in that in that bracket not even at the top just in that discussion Floyd is so far ahead of all of these guys because what Mayweather showed is what makes someone truly great he showed an ability to win the first third of every fight yeah all this gathering data stuff that I said was nonsense Floyd never had to do that Floyd would just say whatever you want to do we can do Floyd also showed the ability to make adjustments on the fly. No instructions needed. He knew how to pace a fight. He knew when to get his breath back. He knew when he needed to break your spirit. He knew when he needed to give you confidence so he could counter you. He knew all of these things because he was an artist. He was a true, he was a true boxing purist. And you know, I think you can say he was almost a study in boxing perfection. Then you've got Pacquiao, who probably sits far above Lomachenko, because Pacquiao was able to be relentless even when you tried to shut him down. Lopez couldn't have shut down Manny Pacquiao at 1-3-5. Not, not the Pacquiao we saw, because he always finds a way in, because he's not afraid to take risks. And he trusts his power and he trusts his chin. And I think they're the sort of things that mean Loma's not quite at that rarefied level. And nor do I think he'll get there, but he doesn't need to. He's still a great at this game because he forced us to look at boxing in a different way. And for that, he'll always have my respect. Now, having met him in person, I know how hard he works. I know how draining all of that publicity stuff is for him. So I have a great degree of sympathy for him. I think he's a class act. I think he's been fantastic for boxing. I think he's shown that it's not all about guys in in grey shell suits with silver hair, smoking 20 Benson and telling you about the days they used to train in the Thomas of Beckett with Henry Cooper and so forth because those guys are the guys who are killing the sport right now. They're dinosaurs. And the problem is they have all the knowledge in the world and they struggle to modernise it. And they struggle to share it with people who could modernise it because they don't want to move the sport forward. But Lomachenko does and his father does. And so I'll always respect what the Lomachenkos have done for the sport. What this was, in its very simplest form, was a smash and grab. It was one of the smartest smash and grabs because they were able to see it through till the end. Not many people do. And that's what we forget. A lot of guys try this. And they get found out. 
Robert Guerrero tried this against Floyd. If you remember, Guerrero moved up from 135 to 147. He might have fought someone. Ah, who was it? I was going to say Jack Kolkai. It wasn't. It was, ah, it was a Turkish guy with a Turkish name. And I can't remember, his, can't remember who it was. He fought one guy. Then he fought Berto and battered Berto and then called for the Floyd fight. Because he wanted to get as much money as he could and get out. Because I think he had to pay for his wife's treatment. And he said, listen, I'm doing the smash and grab. And they planned it. They did it really well. The problem was Floyd is not Lomachenko. Floyd was never going to let that happen. Ortiz tried the, Victor Ortiz tried the same thing. Floyd was never going to let that happen. That's what the greats do. They understand when something's a smash and grab and they make sure it doesn't happen. I just think this is just a lesson for Vasil Lomachenko. Don't let people come and try and steal your legacy. And if I'm, if I'm Team Lopez for now, what I'm doing is I'm planning my career to minimize risk while maximizing learning and development. If I was guiding his career, I'd give him Linares, I'd give him George Cambosos, and I'd give him Nice Selby. They'd be my next three fights if I was Teofimo Lopez, and then I'd move up. I'd scatter the belts again and I'd move up. That's how you learn and develop, I think. But like I said, <laughs> you've, got to, you've, got, you've got to praise the smash and grab when it works. And you've got to praise Teofimo Lopez Sr. for masterminding this and being able to get his son in a position to execute on it. But let's not call it a changing of the guard just yet because sometimes the stars align in your favor. That doesn't necessarily mean you've ascended to, to the sky. So it's, it's worth thinking that. But also, it's a reminder. You don't need a name brand trainer. You don't need a, a superstar trainer to be an undisputed champion. You don't need that. You need the right person. And a lot of you boxers out there, you're chasing names and you're chasing reputations. You're not chasing quality. You're not chasing output. And you're not chasing the guy that can get you to the start line in the best possible shape. I think that's probably a sensible place to draw a line. So, guys, let me know how this episode goes. Um, I could talk about all the other stuff that's happened, and maybe I will. I might do it on Porky's thing, to be honest with you. Or if I manage to catch up with with someone like an Isaac Chamberlain, we might talk about it then. But you know, I'd like to keep these pretty focused, and hopefully this has been interesting enough. So let me know what you think. Let me know what you think of the, the new imagery and so forth, just the the new proposition but as always thank you for listening please share this let's let's increase the footprint because if anything this lockdown has taught us that there's a lot of lying happening in boxing a lot of people buying views and buying likes and buying retweets and it's you guys the boxing fans that should be in control of who gets the limelight who gets the respect and hopefully you reward people who come out and tell it like it is, who give you something back so you understand something that maybe you didn't understand before, just giving you that depth. And remember, still haven't got the begging bowl out for Patreon yet. So, you know, at least this one's free. So guys, take care as always. Love you all and really respect the, you guys for listening and tuning in. And thanks very much. Mm-hmm.